Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. It was funny watching the Smiths come on in and avoid the front row. And I'm wondering if Ed and Terry, are you sure you're Catholic? You came in, you, you took that front row like no problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a little lightheaded, is that what you said? Yeah. That is Joe Tarasco, front row Joe. Extra points for Joe tonight, everybody, because we know it's a competition. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're in the splash zone right here. Okay. All right, so pop quiz, pop quiz. The gospel we just heard, we will hear it again. We always hear it on the same day of the liturgical calendar. What day of the year do we always hear this gospel? Anybody know? Ash Wednesday. Very good. Ash Wednesday. That's right. It's the day of the year that we smear ashes on our foreheads. It's a very visible, tangible, outward sign. And then we hear in the gospel Jesus saying, don't let your neighbors know that you're fasting. I don't get it. Someone's going to, I'm still waiting for someone to explain that to me. Some scripture scholar, some liturgist. It just seems like, did we listen to the gospel? I don't know. All right. Here's what I want to do for this, for, for this homily tonight. I want to draw our attention to two elements that emerge. Ah, look at these folks, front row. Brownie points coming in. No choice. Uh-huh. <laughs> they didn't give you a choice. Okay. I want to draw our attention to two elements from this gospel. The first is this, this This desire that we all have in our hearts in one way or another, this desire to be seen, this desire to be noticed, something along those lines, this desire to be seen and noticed. So Jesus is rebuking the the context here. He's rebuking the, the scribes, the Pharisees, and he's leveling at them this invective, calling them hypocrites, right? Hypocrites. He's condemning them for these, for them doing these external works, everything that, they, that, everything that they do so that they would be seen, right? That they blow their trumpets before they give alms. I'm giving alms to the temple, right? Or they, um, they look gloomy when they're fasting or all their works. He says all their works they perform in order to be seen. Okay. It's important to not just simply stop with, this sort of condemnation of this performance syndrome, because it's not really that simple. And it's not really a condemnation either. What Jesus is getting at in this gospel, it's more of a correction than a condemnation. It's more of a reorientation of their hearts and their, and their desires. He's drawing them to see that it's, it's, I'll put it this way, the problem with the Pharisees and the scribes was not that they wanted to be seen and noticed. That was not the problem. It was the audience that they were choosing. That was the problem. It was the audience that they were choosing, that they were focusing on. We are meant to be seen. We are meant to be noticed. We're meant to be kind of living under the spotlight of delight that comes from our Father. But when we look out horizontally and are doing everything to be seen and noticed by the people around us, that's where the desire has gone askew. The desire is not bad. The desire is good. It has a place. It has a satisfaction. And it's the Father. The problem is when we take that desire that's meant to be upward and we point it outward at the people around us, we're meant to be seen and noticed by the Father. 
And the second element that I just want to draw our attention to is this, this distinction between seeming and, and appearing versus actually being. The distinction between seeming or appearing versus actually being, that there are many, many people, I think, in our church, and many, maybe some of us tonight, who are resigned to the belief that the best that I should hope for is just, at the, is just appearing holy. The best that I can hope for in this life is, at the very least, just appearing holy, at least appearing like I good, appearing like I'm good, at least appearing like I'm integrated and prayerful and that I'm a disciplined person, that the best that I could hope for is appearing to be this way to other people. Because I know deep down what I'm made of. I know deep down in the secret of my own heart what I struggle with, what I think, how I react, how I respond. I know my story from the inside out. I know what I actually do behind closed doors in the dark. So like the best that I can really hope for is just that others will think well of me. That others will think that I'm holy. I don't really actually have the hope of being good, just appearing good. Friends, I just, I just want to say like, when I'll say this, that I know what it is to be in that place. I've been in that place. I was in that place for a long time when I was in the seminary. Most of my years of seminary, that's where my heart was. This sort of addiction to affirmation, this obsession about, well, do I at least look holy? Because these other guys around me, they really look holy. Like, they are not moving during chapel. And I'm like, so fidgety, right? At least I can appear holy. At least I can appear impressive. At least I can appear like I know Jesus. This is not the, that's not the gospel. Like Jesus did not come to give us coping mechanisms. Like he didn't come so that we could have a placebo, that we would just simply white knuckle it through. Like this is not the hope of Jesus, that you can just appear good. The hope is actually that you actually become good. You become transformed. Like Christianity is not at best an impressive, socially acceptable costume that I get to wear that impresses people. That's not, that's not Christianity. That's not discipleship. Like this is a path of genuine transformation. It's a very painful path of transformation because it's the path of letting go of the things that I'm so attached to. It's the path of self-surrender. It's the path of conformity to the man on the cross. There's no other Christianity, by the way. There's not self-help Christianity. Yeah, I know there is out there on the bookshelves and on the TV, you know, there's self-help Christianity. But I just don't want to be them on Judgment Day. I'll just say that. Because that's not the gospel. I preach one thing, Paul says, Christ and him crucified. If you're looking for a shortcut to glory, you're not going to find it. There's one path. And it's a real path, though. Like, if you walk this real path of letting Jesus get real close, it's a real path to transformation unto glory that Martin Luther had it wrong, that we are not merely snow-covered dung heaps. Like, we're just this dung heap of absolute abject brokenness because of the fall, and the best that we could hope for is that we get clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I get why that's appealing. Like, it just means that I get to wear Christianity. 
But the idea of actually having Jesus transform like the compost pile of my humanity and that he's going to grow something in me, he's going to put new life in me, like that's the difference. We're not dung heaps, we're compost piles. <laughs> it's an important nuance. <laughs> he's planting something in us. He's putting new life in us. I, I can't help but quote from John Paul II, right? John Paul, he would, he would thunder at his critics who would say like, what you're proposing, especially in his Wednesday audiences when he was teaching the world about theology of the body, his critics would just say like, what you're proposing is impossible. What you're proposing is not real. And he would thunder at them. He would pound his fist. He would say, do not drain the cross of its power. Do not drain the cross of its power. In one of his Wednesday audiences, he was addressing like this whole idea of the transformative power of the gospel. This idea that we can actually move from ethic to ethos. And by that he meant like this law that's being held up to us can actually be internalized. That we can be transformed from the inside out. We won't just simply need the external law to constrain our freedom, but we can be transformed from the inside out. This is what JP2 said. Many people seem to doubt this effectiveness and thus conclude that the freedom I hold out is beyond the realm of man's possibilities. Yeah, I, I get it. Then he has this. From one perspective, these critics are correct. Then JP2 asks this. But what are the concrete possibilities of man? Like, you know what people say? I'm just merely human. Maybe we've said this. I'm just merely human. Okay, but do you know what it means to be human? Like, do you know what you are? Do you know your destiny? Do you know how you've been bought at such a high price? Do you know what it means to be human? What are the concrete possibilities of man, JP2 asks? And of which man are we speaking? That's more like, of which man are we speaking? That's, that's more JP2. Of man dominated by lust? Or of man redeemed by Christ? Which man are we talking about? The man dominated by concupiscence, the man dominated by sinfulness, or are we talking about the man who's been redeemed by Christ? For those dominated by lust, what I hold out is impossible. And just substitute lust with whatever your favorite sin happens to be, or your favorite temptation. But those who enter the effectiveness of redemption discover another vision of man's possibilities. What is this effectiveness of redemption? It's letting yourself really be seen by Jesus. I mean, think about Zacchaeus, right? The tax collector. He was up in the sycamore tree. He wanted to catch a glimpse of Jesus as he passed by. Here he is, Zacchaeus, wrapped up in a life of complete brokenness, addiction, intractable sinfulness. He was in a pit that he couldn't get himself out of. And there he is in the tree. He's looking at the Lord. He's the observer. Jesus is the observed. With no hope in his heart that he would ever change. There was no hope that he would change. Jesus was just an amusement that afternoon. Like, oh, I got to say I saw the Jesus guy. Nothing was going to be different for him. And then 
there's the moment where Jesus looks up in the tree, they meet eye to eye, and Zacchaeus just like falls out of the tree like this ripe fruit. His life is changed because he met him eye to eye. He was not just simply looking at the Lord, but he himself was now the looked at, the gazed upon. He was seen by Jesus. That compost pile of his humanity was actually now invaded with seeds of glory. So back to these Pharisees, back to the Pharisee in our own hearts, right? Performing our works to be seen by other people. Things will never change for you and for me unless and until we meet Jesus. Eye to eye, nose to nose, heart to heart. Unless we, like in our naked complexity, allow ourselves to be seen by him. Unless our hearts are attuned to this audience of one that we all have, that he's really, right now, with rapt attention, gazing upon you. Rapt attention. Undivided divine attention, gazing upon you. And just simply waiting for you to look up. It is that easy. We make it very complicated. They made it very complicated. But it isn't really. (laughs) It's just a matter of letting yourself be seen. Amen.